I uh, giggled a little bit because uh, that verse, I don't know if one saying correctly or not, but it said Christ is born in Bethlehem. And for those of you that were here this morning, I just want you to know that I know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I know he was not born in Nazareth, even though I may have said that three or four times this morning. And I appreciate all of you who made sure that I knew that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth. You know, we get that mixed up. I, 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 I concentrate so much and not because everything happened in Jerusalem. I concentrated so much on making sure I didn't say Jerusalem. I still said the wrong thing. And it just doesn't sound right. Oh, beautiful star of Nazareth. It just, that doesn't work. So uh, anyway, I know that it's Bethlehem, but I do want you to know, and I'm only doing this because my dad's here, and uh, I come by, you know, certain things hereditarily. Uh, About 48 years ago, by my recollection, my dad was filling in preaching in Tennessee for the preacher. I guess he was gone. And uh, he was doing a lesson on Moses at the burning bush. And he said to the people, to the congregation, he said, And God said to Moses, take off your feet. For where you are is holy ground. And so, you know, it's a heredity thing. Uh, just thought I'd let you know that. You know, we talked about this a little bit this morning in the lesson, but there are certain events that are like watershed moments in history. Uh, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo kind of ended France's reign in Europe. The Battle of Midway was the beginning of the end of the war against Japan in World War II. And many other different things like that where history was changed and from that moment on things began to be different. The, the taking down of the, of the Berlin Wall, for example, in our, my lifetime. And in the Gospels, there are certain moments where, like we talked about this morning, almost in the whole story of God's redeeming plan, in the Gospel, there's this this leading up, and then we hit this moment, and everything then points to something else. In the Gospel of John, it's John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There'd been all this build up against the hostility of the the rulers and and everything. But it was that moment when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that the leaders and the Jewish leaders were like, this is it. We got to do something with it. You know, tolerated him long enough and everything from that point began to to point towards Jesus' death on the cross. In the Gospel of Matthew, That is chapter 16. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along here in a minute, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. And we know many of the events that happen and that are recorded in this chapter. We find Peter's confession that we're going to talk about in a moment. Jesus' statement about building his church. And Jesus' announcement of his upcoming death. And from that moment on, even though a lot of other things happen in the Gospel of Matthew, but really from that moment on, everything then in Jesus' ministry begins to point towards the cross. Everything he does and everything he talks about and preaches kind of begins to point towards that moment of the cross. And so we're going to look at that a little bit this evening. But this is 
kind of brings about a question, you know, Jesus is going to ask a question in a minute and kind of looks like Jesus is, is kind of asking about his public image. And so that made me think, you know, does it matter what people think about us? Does it matter what others say about us? And as the teenagers would know, the answer is yes and no. If we're doing what God wants us to do, if we're doing God's will, and we are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, no, it really doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. In fact, Jesus said, you know, the world's going to hate you. So you can't really worry about that. However, if we're not living our lives as God would have us live our lives, and there are those out there who see us and are disinclined, is that a word? It is tonight. And they are disinclined to accept Jesus because of our behavior, because it's not in line with what God says, then it does matter. What people think. We are to be a light to the world. And so it kind of depends on the situation, I guess. This section is all about two questions. We're going to begin in chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist. say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's where we're going to take our lesson from tonight. Why do you think or what was Jesus' purpose in asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Why why would he ask his disciples that? Well, it could have been out of curiosity. Maybe Jesus knew that they'd been out and about amongst the people, that they were kind of clued in to to the, the crowds or whatever. And so Jesus was just kind of curious what the people were saying about him. It could have been to check the inside of the disciples, see if they kind of knew what was going on and what their reaction might be. But I really think... The reason Jesus asked the first question was to set up the second question. Those of you that are teachers, and I know I do this with the the teenagers or an adult class or, or whatever the case may be. I'll ask a question, and that's not really the important question. The important question is the one that's coming. And I'll ask that question to set up the next question. And I really think that that's what Jesus was doing here. He asked them, well, what do people say about me? And then they give their answer. Talk about that in a minute. And then he says, but what do you say? That's what really matters. But so we're going to look at kind of this discussion a little bit tonight because nothing's changed really in many, many years. So first of all, what do others say? I think the disciples in answering the question for Jesus... We're trying to help Jesus out. I think they were telling him what they thought he wanted to hear. I think they were trying to 
to boost his image, so to speak. And so they chose those things that people were saying that were positive. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Well, the people loved John the Baptist. All the people loved John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Oh, Elijah, historic figure from the past. And the people certainly loved him as well. Jeremiah, one of the favorite prophets of the Jews. Or one of the other prophets. You see, all of those are positive figures. And I'm sure that that is what some people were saying about Jesus. But we know that there's another side to that story. We know that there were those out there who thought Jesus was a madman. There were those out there who thought Jesus was a blasphemer. There were those out there who thought that Jesus was a, a, a traitor to the cause of Judaism. And so, I don't know why they chose those, but I think it was because they, they felt like Jesus maybe needed a little boost. And didn't want to say the bad things. I don't know about politicians or people who are high in, in you know, business or whatever. You know, if they got people around them, there's always going to be plenty of people to tell them the good stuff. But what we need sometimes is somebody tell us the truth. And I don't know necessarily that the disciples did that right, right here. And then there were still others that didn't pay him any mind at all. Saw him as a flash in the pan, seeking his 15 minutes of fame. You know, well, yeah, I've heard about that Jesus, but he doesn't have anything to do with me and don't want anything to do with him. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. If we were to ask, if Jesus were to ask us the same question today, who do people say that I am? Our response would be a little similar to what we see in the response of the people 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked on this earth. Not the response the disciples gave, but the realistic response. We see today that some believe that he is a wise man. And they would put him on the same level as Confucius or Dr. Phil or somebody. And they may respect his moral teachings. And they may like what he has to say about how we ought to treat other people. But that's as far as it goes. Others in our world today, just like in Jesus' day, are directly opposed to him. They consider him to be a madman or a myth. There are even those out there who who detest all that he stands for. Especially in the area of morality. It reminds me, you remember, and we've mentioned this several times. It reminds me when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man that had the legion of demons in him. And Jesus cast the demons out in the pigs and they ran off, you know. And all of a sudden, the people from the town came to see what was going on. And here was this man who for years they had tried to control and contain. They had tried chaining him up and he broke the chains. They tried ostracizing him from the community and he was still up there howling at the moon naked at night in the you know in the mountains and they didn't know what to do with him 
And they come and there they find him dressed and in his right mind. I love that. Dressed and in his right mind. And the people said, oh, Jesus. Wonderful. That's great. Would you stay with us a little longer? Because we got some more people that need healing. Can you talk to us about how you, how, how you did this for this man? Those of you that know, no, no, that's not what they said. It said they were afraid. They asked Jesus to leave the area. Wow. Here Jesus had done for this man what they had tried for years to do and could not accomplish. And they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. There are those in our world who cannot argue that Christian principles and Christian morality and Christian, you know, ethics are superior to what the world has to offer. And yet they are so hardened towards Christianity and God that they don't want anything to do with it. Just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they opposed him because they saw him as a threat to their way of life. And you know what? He was a threat to their way of life. He was. And they knew it. And they wanted no part of it. Still others in our world today have no opinion at all. They just go through life doing their business, not realizing or caring about the impact that he can and does have on their lives. I don't know about you, but there, you know, we, we, we go to vote. Those of you that vote, you got to vote. And, you know, there are certain positions. We know the importance and we know we're going to vote for president. OK, I know that we're going to vote for senator. All right. You know, get down on the local level. We're going to vote for a county judge or a county commissioner or whatever. And then there's offices that I don't have a clue what they are. I don't have a clue what they do. And for years, one of those was railroad commissioner. Railroad commissioner. Well, you'd think you'd know a little bit about what the railroad commission does, right? Wrong. Since 2005, I looked this up, just so you know. Since 2005, the Texas Railroad Commission has absolutely nothing, zero, to do with the railroad. That has all been turned over to the Department of Transportation. Has absolutely nothing to do with the railroad. And so, you know, I, I thought, you know, it had to do with railroads. I don't have anything to do with the railroads. I don't care about the railroad commissioner. So, you know, I wouldn't vote. You know, I, I don't know. I don't care anything. Then I started digging in. Railroad commission is pretty important. They set the gas, oil prices, the taxes on the gas and oil. If you look on your gas pump and you go to pump and it says that this pump has been inspected by the Texas Railroad Commission. Oh. They also had to do with gas and oil lines and different things like that. Well, you know, I own a couple gas wells, believe it or not part of a couple gas wells. I'm not Jed Clampett. So here was this position 
that for all these many years, I didn't care about. That it had any effect on me and my life. And now I realize, hey, <laughs> these dudes are pretty important. <laughs> Maybe I ought to think about who I'm voting for before I vote for him. And you see, there's a whole lot of people who kind of see the same thing about Jesus. Eh, he doesn't affect me. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't apply to my life. I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be fine with or without him. It's no big deal. We have people like that in our world today as well. But there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You cannot, you know, you're either for him or you're against him. And so that brings us to the second question, not just what others say, but what do you say? I originally had the title of this lesson. Go ahead, Joe. What do others say? What do people, who do people say that I am? But then I realized that's not the really important question. For us in here, it doesn't matter what the people out there say. It doesn't matter what other people think. What matters is who do we say? Jesus Christ is. And so Jesus followed up the first question kind of with a call for personal confession. And again, why? Why did Jesus say, well, who do you say that I am? Perhaps he's testing their understanding, the disciples, perhaps testing their commitment, perhaps preparing them for his announcement of death that's coming in just a few verses. But as usual, Peter speaks up. Peter's one of those guys, if you're a teacher, you have these, and you, and you teach kind of discussion classes or whatever. There's always generally somebody in the class like this who cannot stand silence. And you'll ask a question. See, some of you are freaking out right now. You'll ask a question and nobody will say anything. And so there's that person who always is going to say something. Because they, they, they just can't stand that moment of silence. Peter's kind of like that. He, he, he's going he's to be the one to say something. And so Jesus asked, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we know from studying Peter that a lot of times Peter gets it wrong. A lot of times Peter ends up with his foot in his mouth. This is not one of those times. He got it exactly right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we didn't go on to read it, but you remember Jesus says, You are right. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for man, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And so Jesus says, spot on, Peter. You got it exactly right. But you see, Peter still had not yet grasped the whole concept of what it meant to be the Son of God. What it meant to be the Christ. Because you remember, in just a few more verses, Jesus is going to say, guys... I got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter, 
having just come off this big success, right? This big high. Jesus praised him right in front of everybody. Jesus said, your name is Peter and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, you know? And I mean, he's, Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. And Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And it said that Peter takes Jesus aside and notice this word, rebukes him. Not questions him. Not, you know, some mild kind of correct, corrected him even. Peter rebuked Jesus. What? Because you see, Peter did not understand what being the Christ, the son of the living God meant. That all had to do with Jesus dying on the cross. And Peter didn't get that. And there are many out in our world today who want to accept Jesus as as the, uh, the Christ but want to accept them on their own terms. Okay, Jesus, you know, you can be Christ or whatever, but you, know, you said this and I really can't do that. Uh, or you, no, I'm really not into that. And, you know, you need to, you need to kind of water down your, your whatever. And then maybe I'll come. You remember in John chapter six, that the crowds were following Jesus. And that's when Jesus talked about, you know, being the bread of life. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not, you know. And and the people were just aghast at that. Horrified by it. Didn't want anything to do it. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, and many of them left Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Y'all come back. I changed my mind. I'm not going to be that harsh. I'm not going to demand that type of a commitment. I'll, I'll compromise a little bit for you if, you if y'all just come on back. No, he let them go. He let them go. And there are many out there who want to say that Jesus is a Christ but not live it in their lives. There comes a point in which we must face Jesus and answer the same question. Who do we say that he is? Now... If I ask that question today, tonight, I mean, you know, let's face it. This is Sunday night church. And this is December the 23rd Sunday night church. So if you're here tonight, which I guess you are. But if I were to ask you, you who do you say Jesus is? 99.9% of the folks in here tonight would say the same thing Peter did. We made that confession when we were baptized. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? We believe that. But just like Peter, we had more to learn from that time to now. And our confession is more more than just a statement of belief. And that leads us to our third point, which is how we say it. You know, we're talking about a confession. Peter made this great confession. We make a confession. But is it more than just our words? 
It's not the first time that Jesus talked about confession. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge, King James I think says confess, acknowledges him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my father who's in heaven. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Paul says, if we confess therefore with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Confession, verbal confession is a part of our Christian faith. It's a part of a statement that we make. But our acknowledgement and our confession goes beyond words or a simple statement of faith. It is with our lives that we truly confess that Jesus is Christ and Lord. It's easy to say it, but do we live it? It is by our lives that others will truly appreciate our faith and our commitment. You know, it's kind of like, again, going back to politics a little bit. You know, do candidates get on your nerves after a while? You know, and we talk about this, you know, promise one thing and then they're elected and something else, you know. I don't, I don't know, Jew, about, you know, uh, Porto Alegre or, or Hasifi, you know, where you grew up. Uh, but I know that uh, David uh, Ingram told us when we went to Fortaleza, one of the things that happens in Brazil, especially in that part, maybe all over, is that when a politician is running for re-election, all of a sudden they get all concerned about education. And they'll put money into building a new school or updating a new school or making sure that there's enough teachers or this or that. And as soon as the election is over, everything stops. David Ingram took us to a bunch of schools that were half built. Because during the voting season, they'd started the construction. Everything was going fine. But as soon as the election was over, done. It's easy with our mouths to make promises or confessions or a statement like Peter made here. But what about our lives? Jesus spoke to this also when he said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. That's contradictory to what Romans 10 says. Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Well, how do we reconcile those two? Well, it's not that difficult. Our verbal confession is a starting point. But it goes beyond that. Jesus explained it rather well when he said, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we can confess with our mouth all day long. But if our lives are not parallel with that confession, if our lives do not live out that confession, then just our confession does us no good. Something more than a statement. It's a lifestyle. It's putting ourselves on the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ as the Lord and master of our lives. It's surrendering our desires and following him, which talks about also later in this chapter.
sang an invitation song this morning that said, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Not just with your mouth, but with your life. Because that is what matters the most. Who do people say that he is? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I wish they all believed what we believe. I wish they all would make confess. I wish they all would believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they don't. And that may hurt us. That may motivate us to reach out to people. But that should not discourage us. That should not factor into how we live our lives just because these people live a certain way and believe a certain thing. Because we do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we will live our lives in a way that honors that. Not just from our lips, but from our lives as well. If you're here this evening, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.